Welcome to our podcast from the ARC Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of ARC, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. The ARC Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. First though, Tara, nice to see you again. Very good to see you too, Karen. It's good to be back great in touch. Great to be back on air. <laughs> nice to be back on air after a little bit of a break. We've got a great podcast ahead of us, talking to a fellow journalist, which I know can be a bit about inside baseball, but he's doing something far more exciting than you and me, producing a newspaper on WhatsApp. Which is quite extraordinary and will lead into lots of chat about social media, which is very topical at the moment. Exactly. Well, we've got a busy one ahead of us. So without any further ado, let's take a look at some of the stories that have been in the news since our last podcast. Tonight, Guinea's ousted former president, Alpha Conde, is no longer allowed to leave the country after authorities moved to prosecute him for violence that broke out over his successful bid for a third term in office. Today, Musk tweeted that his $44 billion takeover of Twitter is on hold while he investigates the platform's problems with fake accounts. Now the U.S. Supreme Court could soon end the nationwide legal right to abortion in the U.S. by overturning the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. That's according to a leaked draft opinion obtained by news outlet Politico. Foreign ministers from the Group of Seven countries meeting in Germany have called for an end to Russia's blockade of Ukraine's ports. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said Russia was waging a food war by causing millions of tons of grain to go to waste. A win for Ukraine. Riding a wave of popular support for the war-ravaged country, the Ukrainian band Kalush Orchestra has won Eurovision 2022, adding a political tone to a contest that claims to be neutral. Now, Tara, as we say, it's been a while since we last spoke. There's been a lot going on. The impact of the war in Ukraine still being sharply felt here across Africa. We have elections in Kenya on the horizon, which pits dynasty politics against class and ethnic divisions. And already Nigeria's presidential election, slated for next year, is seeing prominent figures throwing their hats into the ring. Yes, Nigeria is already into its election season, its primary season, which will take place over the next couple of months. Um, And although it doesn't go to the polls until 2023, as you say, we are seeing uh, quite a number of of heavyweights registering their interest. Mm. But perhaps the biggest surprise is the current vice president, Yemi Osimbajo, who is actually challenging the current kingmaker, Bola Tinubu, who in fact was instrumental to his own candidacy as vice president. Uh, and perhaps the most bizarre um, uh, candidate is that of the central bank chief, Godwin Emefiele, mm. who lots of other um, priorities, such as what's happening to the Naira. Yes, busy man. Busy man. 
or at least he should be, dealing with the Naira. I mean, he's uh, one of the things is that he's under pressure to actually liberalise the Naira and should probably be focusing on that rather than his presidential ambitions. Well, I hope he sits up and listens to you, Tara. One hopes so too. Concentrate on the Naira, Yank. Concentrate (laughs) on the Naira, sir. concentrate on the Naira. (laughs) No, but to be fair, he has been criticised in the press. All the other candidates basically are being drawn from the ranks of the sitting governors or former governors, uh, which is a a normal stepping stone. And that's a big change in Nigeria too, because before that, it would have been all military. Mm. This is really an important election because it marks the end of former generals having any say in the uh, in the progress of Nigeria. And of course, Nigerian elections always matter because it's Africa's most populous nation. And it's also obviously one of the powerhouses, the economic powerhouses for the continent. It's the biggest economy on the continent. It's the one that no one can ignore. And um, and it's very important who is at the top because a very small tweak of the, Ken- of the Nigerian economy means very big swings in its investable state or otherwise. Yeah, thanks, Tara. Well, talking about big economies, let's focus on Kenya. Now, we've had the recent passing of Mwai Kibaki at the age of 90, the gentleman president, as some obituaries have described him. The first president after Daniel Arap Moy, he ushered in what was meant to be a new era of politics in 2002 under his Rainbow Coalition in an attempt to try and what, break the mould of, of tribal politics in Kenya. But you'll remember some of the worst violence that Kenya experienced actually happened on Mwai Kibaki's watch and that was during those elections in 2007, which led to what, a power-sharing government and then that international criminal court hearing, which eventually collapsed. Fast forward to today and all eyes are on elections in Kenya in August this year. Mr Kibaki's former nemesis, Raila Odinga, is being backed by the current president, Uhuru Kenyatta, who constitutionally cannot run again. And he's going head to head with his deputy, William Ruto, who's positioning himself as the voice of Hustle Kenya, of the working class. Now, all the opinion polls show that it's going to be a fiercely contested race, with the Council on Foreign Relations describing it possibly as one of the most consequential votes for Africa. Perhaps they're going to say the same about Nigeria. It's consequential because it's being seen as the final election in Kenya where the old guard get a stab at the top job. Um, Opinion polls are split as to whether or not we can expect to see the violence of the past repeating itself here because there is so much at stake. And of course, if there isn't a clear one winner declared, then we could possibly see a rerun in October. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But Kenyan elections have been notoriously violent in the past to varying degrees. So this one does really matter. And although, you know, the campaigning hasn't officially begun, certainly, you know, when you look at the Kenyan press, you read social media, um, those lines are being drawn in the sand. Well, it seems to be just election after election, because actually the other big story um, that has happened since we last spoke was some important election wins for the opposition Citizens Coalition for Change in Zimbabwe. Mm. Admittedly, they are only um, by-elections, but there's a series of by-elections that were held in March, which gave a foretaste of perhaps of something that might come when presidential elections are held next year. 
And as you recall, Karen, the, the CCC is led by Nelson Chamisa, yes. a new and quite dynamic, youthful opposition leader. And, his, and the party won 19 out of 28 seats um, compared to the ruling ZANU-PF which only won seats in nine of the contested seats, which would indicate quite a swing in uh, quite a swing in popularity. As Anu PF is looking aged and divided, mm. um, and the economy is under crippling pressure. Um, unemployment is now at ninety percent because the economy is largely running as an informal sector enterprise, because of the breathtaking state of corruption and basically maladministration by ZANU PF. In the latest measure, President Emerson Mnangagwa has ordered banks to stop lending in a bid to control yeah. the currency's rapid deterioration. Yeah. Um, how not to manage an economy. Um, but are we going to see change next year? Will ZANU-PF's unpopularity result in a new ruling party? Sadly, no matter how successful an opposition campaign, what we know um, and what has happened in the past, ZANU-PF has been accused of rigging elections for three decades and is highly practised at it. I recall a human rights activist said to me once that ZANU-PF uh, activists only have to shake a matchbox at voters, at particularly rural voters, to remind them of the consequences of not voting ZANU-PF. Thanks, Tara. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Our guest on this week's Ark Insider is a senior news journalist and committed Africanist, Simon Allison, who after decades of writing for a range of publications, including the Mail and Guardian, took the bold step of launching a continent-wide newspaper on the messaging app WhatsApp. Two years in, the newspaper, and it's called The Continent, is now pulling in new readers in a model which has seen Simon dubbed by the journal The New African as a warrior against fake information. Simon, absolutely no pressure there with that kind of <laughs> no. with those kind of plaudits. Welcome to the Ark Insider. It's familiar territory, journalists talking to journalists, something I know sometimes we shy away from, but we have every reason to talk to you um, about your publication. You're joining me here in studio, so it's always nice because it gets a bit lonely here in Pretoria. We're also joined on the line by my comrade and co-conspirator, Tara O'Connor. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the Ark Insider. Hi, Tara. Hi, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. Simon, um, some of our listeners may know you from your editorship of the South Africa-based Mail and Guardian, which I just mentioned, and from your expansive coverage of African affairs over the years in a number of other publications. But it's now two years since you launched your online newspaper, The Continent, on WhatsApp. It's a pretty comprehensive and very polished weekly read, I must say. Did you decide to launch it on WhatsApp as a counterbalance to fake news circulating on social media? So I've always wanted to launch a pan-African news publication of some description, and I've never really figured out how we would do it, how we would distribute it, um, you know, how to get a newspaper across the continent. Mm. And um, I, the idea kind of came to to me and, and a couple of my colleagues at the beginning of the pandemic in, in April 2020. Yeah. We 
you know, the, the world was, was in a very confused place. There was a lot of information going around. There was a lot of misinformation going yeah. around. And what we noticed was all of our friends and family turned to us as journalists to help them decipher the landscape, the yeah. information landscape. Mm. And we kept getting people, you know, an aunt who would say, you know, I, I heard that steam inhalation cures COVID. So mm -hmm. should I do that? I heard this. I heard that. I heard, a, you know, lab in China. I heard hydrochloric, whatever, however mm. you say that, that thing, hydrochloroquinine can yeah, cure exactly. COVID. Um, is that true? And, you know, we try to deal with these, these questions and, and provide real information. But one question I kept asking everyone who approached me was, where did you hear mm. this information? The source. What's the source, especially when it was fake news or, or misinformation? And every single time the response was the same. WhatsApp. Really? And that's when it suddenly sort of dawned on me, and it really should have occurred to me earlier, that WhatsApp is the primary means of information dissemination, certainly in South Africa, but also across the African mm -hmm. continent. Mm -hmm. um, it is by far the biggest social media platform, but we don't often know what's going on in WhatsApp because it's not public. It's not broadcast to the world. It's a behind closed doors, behind really. closed doors, yeah. encrypted, private. It's the place where you talk to your friends, to your family. It's not the place where you, you know, you try and shout to the world. And suddenly we thought, okay, if we want to put genuine news into these spaces, into people's hands, into our friends and families' sort of brains, we have to do it on WhatsApp. Mm. Absolutely gripping and uh, and absolutely so true. It does seem that so much of the disinformation that comes around comes via via the various WhatsApp groups that I'm a member of. But I'm interested in the actual business model. Uh, you know, because one of the things I've noticed with WhatsApp, certainly for even community groups, is that we are capped at uh, 250 or mm -hmm. 260 members. So how did you get around that? So it's a great question. And quite a few news organizations have come to us subsequent to us launching the continent and said, well, how, how do you do it? Do you have a bot? Do you have some kind of software that solves this, this distribution problem for you? Are you trying to, you know, have you found a way to get around WhatsApp's mm. terms and conditions? Um, and our answer is always the same. No, it's just time and manual labor. Mm. So at the very beginning of the continent, we were sending people their editions every week individually. So we were just going through our sort of phone book, we'd saved everyone's numbers and we sent it and it would take hours. We've evolved it slightly since then. We now have distribution lists, but there are still limits on those. So you can send to 256 people per hour. Um, and if you exceed that, then WhatsApp may shut down your number, which would, of course, be devastating for us. So we're very careful. Um, but it means that sending the newspaper out every week can take the entire weekend. I mean, it's literally a, a team of people sent, pressing the send button. Yeah, so we've got a, a really fantastic distribution team who work through the night and through the weekend, making sure it gets to our subscribers. But it is hard work, it's time-consuming, and it is effectively just manual labour. And there isn't really a machine that can do this for mm -hmm. us for two reasons. One is that WhatsApp you know, doesn't really want its platform to be used as a, a mass broadcast thing it because then it starts running into the problems that you see on Facebook and Twitter yeah. of how do you you know how, regulate much, how it, you regulate yeah. it you're now responsible for this information F you know fake news is already flourishing on WhatsApp 
if you can get to even more people, it might be even worse, all of that. That's one part of it. The second part of it is that a core sort of building block of the continent has been our relationship with our subscribers and it's an individual relationship mm -hmm. so when people talk to us on whatsapp they are talking to a human and we respond to them as humans and that has meant that we have a really really small but really engaged group of subscribers who then take the publication and they share it on to their friends and family and that sort of brings me on to another question, Sam. Again, it's the sort of business model of it that it interests me because so you're actually really talking about a viral marketing distribution, really. You know, uh, you distribute it, then people distribute it on and, and so on. Um, but actually, how do you make money out of that? I know that you're free to subscribers, but uh, in the end, how do you make money? Like most journalists, mm -hmm. um, I'm terrible with, with money and numbers. You're um, poor like us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but what we have kind of discovered is that there is quite a large appetite amongst large international donors to invest in African media. Um, so there is funding available for high quality journalism in Africa. There are two limiting factors to that. The first is producing that high quality journalism mm. is hard. The second is do you have an organization that can handle the funding? When you start talking about grants in the hundreds of thousands or, you know, maybe one day millions of dollars, it's a really tough accounting and, you know, account, accounting and grant processing and grant management. Mm. Not many media houses have that capacity. Um, we are quite fortunate in that we, we are housed within an NGO and we have developed the, the sort of, management capacities so that we can handle those large grants. But we do think that in the near to medium term, we can survive purely on grants and that will allow us to build up the runway to then develop the advertising side of things, which started slowly but is happening. And it's it's a free service. It's free to subscribers and you charge the advertisers print rates. Is that right? Absolutely. So we very deliberately said no to a lot of advertising in the beginning. You know, we were lucky. I mean, very initially, it was our own money funding this thing. Then we got some donor funding, which meant we, we had the luxury of, of time and space. And so we said no to advertising that we didn't feel met our either our financial requirements mm -hmm. or the sort of kind of advertising we were pitching at. So, you know, if someone wanted to advertise their webinar on the continent, we you know, very politely said no. What we're looking for is the kind of ads you will see in Time magazine mm -hmm. or The Economist. Those kinds of companies, banks, airlines, etc. And we will charge print prices. This is a new product. One of the one of the original sins of the internet age for journalism is that when news websites first sort of were established, newspapers did not value them. Mm -hmm. And so they sold off that real estate yeah. at incredibly cheap yeah. prices. And we have never been able to recover from that. So we were very intent that we will not make the same mistake with this relatively new format. We're going to set the bar high and wait for the big money to come rolling in. And that will then set the standard for us going forward. Can we talk a bit more broadly about journalism and news in Africa? Um, you know, you've already talked on the social media space being a sort of site of disinformation. But, you know, it's also given people unprecedented access to information on the continent. 
So what do African media houses have to do to preserve the integrity of news in this environment and be vigilant against uh, becoming a sort of echo chamber? Because you do see lots of mainstream media also retweeting stuff that appears on Twitter, possibly not realising that they're actually part of an algorithm that perpetuates misinformation or disinformation. That's a great question. And it's such a hard one to answer. I think it varies so much from country to country and from what sort of what type of media house you are, where your funding comes from. But there are sort of a few common challenges that we all face. And and the most pressing one is the simply overwhelming amount of information mm. that our audiences are confronted with. So how do we as journalists not contribute to that overwhelming nature of, of the information landscape? How do we help our audience cut through it rather than add to it. I think that is the the fundamental question of journalism in the 21st century. Yes, journalism exists to hold power to account. That will never change. That is important. But today, journalism also exists to help people understand the world around them, to help them process all of this information that is coming in. If you think about it, you know, the core skills of journalism, fact-checking, verifying, confirming, etc. We are uniquely placed to handle the the deluge, the the infodemic, um, mm. sort of what what it's called. When the pandemic first began, the Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO, said that the world is facing two crises today: the pandemic and the infodemic. Mm. And unless we solve both, we're going to solve neither. Um, from a public health perspective, and I think that's where journalism needs to come in. We are on the front lines of the infodemic, and if I think of websites that, you know, news websites that are publishing 40, 50, 60 stories a day. And I'm wondering if that is doing more harm than good, yeah. ultimately. So it's got to be quite... So the problem is it's, it's got to be it's got to be quantity, though, to get the advertisers in because you need to have eyes locked on ads, uh, but you also want to have the quality. I mean, who's, who's reading the paper at the moment? We've got a sort of core subscriber base of about 18,000 people. And what we know about our subscribers is that many of them share the continent on. So this varies. Some people don't share it at all. Some people will be sharing it to dozens of people every week. Um, And that is part of our sort of distribution model. Mm -hmm. Our subscribers are also the newspaper delivery service. So we are estimating sort of circulation of about 100,000 people. And from what we know from our audience research is this is sort of in the range of, you know, most of our readers are between 25 and 45 years old, professionals. We have a lot of diplomats, business people, academics, a lot of African diaspora as well. Mm. So we have huge audiences in the US and UK, a little bit in Europe as well. One person in Azerbaijan, who I'm, I'm desperate to meet one day. <laughs> so, you know, and it's it just shows you the power of a medium that is not constrained by borders um, or by logistical challenges of, of where do you print a newspaper and how do you deliver it? So, yeah, so that's kind of who our core audience is. And then we... We're working on growing that, but without putting too much pressure on our distribution team. And you're providing a lot of content. Sorry to leap in, Tara, here, but just having a look no at problem. it. No problem. You know, Tara mm. and I have had a, a yeah. browse that you're producing a lot of content, and a lot of it is original content. This is not agency feeds. I mean, how are you actually managing to generate so much material on a weekly basis? Um, great question. It's a lot of hard work. But what we've, you know, what we've found is there is a lot of great journalism being produced on this continent. You know, but but it doesn't always receive the support that it needs to to sort of 
flourish on the international stage. It doesn't you pay are, the mortgage, let's be honest. Yeah, no, mm. no, absolutely not. Um, but it also doesn't receive the kind of assistance that you would get if you are a journalist, say, in the US or the UK. Um, if you are a junior journalist in the US and you write a piece for the New York Times, that piece will go through three or four layers of editing. By the time it comes out, it's a world-class piece of journalism. Mm -hmm. African journalists are pretty much never afforded the same mm -hmm. privilege. Mm -hmm. You write your piece, it often will just get posted online. Maybe a proofreader has, has looked at it, maybe not. Um, of course, I'm generalizing here. There are exceptions. There are plenty of publications that, that do more work on, on stories than that, but very rarely to the same level. So what we are also trying to do is we provide a service for freelancers, so we pay them for their work, but we also try and bring that work up to as high a standard as possible mm -hmm. with proper fact-checking, really good editing. We do all the design work and the headlines and the, all those little things that, that help stories sort of sing. So we're just tapping into what we think is a really vast wealth of, of journalism that isn't really being utilised fully. I was just sort of reflecting on your business model as well. And one of the things that is happening about social media is the restraints that are gained, that are coming in. And I, I using WhatsApp is um, is obviously brings you into conflict with things such as, you know, poppy, personal, private information. How do you actually and also then the the sort of data protection type a legislation that's now very much uh, uh, central in Europe and very much prominent in South Africa and gaining ground elsewhere. And I wonder, with your distribution model, how do you manage that? Because that's a particular problem. So it's not as pronounced a problem with WhatsApp as it would be if we were based as a, as a news website. If you're on an internet browser, that browser is collecting far more information mm from you than we are as to dealing with WhatsApp. Um, WhatsApp gives us almost nothing. So we know people's phone numbers, which they, which we receive when they contact us. So that's the first hurdle right. of Poppy is, is, mm. is we're not taking anyone's yeah. numbers who, who hasn't volunteered their number to us. And then we know nothing else about you. We don't ask for your name. We don't know where you are. We don't know what you do. Um, and so we actually have very limited information about our subscribers beyond what we then will ask them as part of a voluntary reader survey later in the year. That brings me on to sort of a question about um, social media platforms and, um, and democracy in Africa. I mean, there are two sides to this story that are also becoming very prominent at the moment. I mean, we've all, you know, seen, for example the story in Zambia, the elections, um, the elections that took place in Zambia, where um, Hakainde Hichilema won a landslide victory, largely again because of this use of social media, including WhatsApp. And then in South Africa, we see this organised social media xenophobic campaigns that resemble so much of the xenophobic messaging that you see in populists in the US, UK, and very recently in France. And I'm just wondering, you know, is social media actually going to be overwhelmed and become a threat to Africa's democracies? It's something I am very worried about. I participated in the Facebook leaks last mm. year. 
So we were the only African publication to receive access to the documents that were leaked by the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haug. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating about that experience was you suddenly got this look inside the inner workings of one of the massive social media behemoths. And you saw how they viewed what was going on in Africa. And there were two main takeaways. The first was Facebook 100% understood that their platform was spreading hate, disinformation, mm. um, incitements to violence. They knew that that threat existed. They knew that it wasn't just a threat. It was, it was really happening, especially in the case of Ethiopia. This was documented by their own internal teams who even like flagged specific accounts to be taken down, etc. The second takeaway was with that information, Facebook chose to do nothing. Their African operations are of such limited importance or significance to the company itself that they took no actions against the accounts that their own team had flagged. They took no serious steps to resolve the problems. They devoted almost no resources to putting content moderation teams onto this information, etc., etc. Something like 90% of their content moderation budget is spent on their American operations. Yeah, interesting. So we had yeah. Feril Hafiji on our on our podcast uh, a while back. Feril's a very prominent uh, journalist in South Africa, and she said one of the biggest problems is that the big social media companies don't really have a presence in Africa. They don't, so they don't understand the context. They don't care. Is it? Is it? Do you think it's actually intentional neglect, or do you think it's just an assumption about you know it's not a, a market that's worth bothering about? I would have thought it was just a sort of casual thing. But the more you read these documents and the more you see how these, you know, these concerns were raised by Facebook's own team, really serious stuff, and they were just brushed aside. It, it, it's hard not to feel that this is a deliberate marginalization of the problems that, that we are facing. And that's why the social media sort of landscape scares me so much from an African context mm. is we're not going to get any help from the, the social media companies themselves. Um, we've reached out to WhatsApp, for example, and they're not interested in sort of helping us to get news to more people. In fact, they're pretty skeptical of, of what we're doing in general. I think they're scared of their platform being used for news distribution yeah. because they, then they run into the same kind of regulatory challenges that Twitter and, and Facebook are facing. They may have to content moderate and, and all of those hassles. So we really are on our own. And what that means is we are now reliant on legislators in the US taking action against social media platforms. And we have to hope that whatever action is taken in the US fits our context as well and will solve our, pro our problems as well. And it probably won't. And we've seen South Africa's latest newspaper, The Daily Maverick, build up a membership in a similar way to uh, in the way that you have done and then go back to old technology and go into um, producing a publication. Um, is that a way forward for you? Perhaps. I don't see the need necessarily. Um, I think that, you know, Daily Maverick operates in one country predominantly. Um, I used to work for the Daily yes. Maverick back in the day. Um, it's, it's a lot <laughs> easier to make those sort of logistical, to, to, to resolve those logistical challenges in one country. Um, when you start talking about 54 countries, and to be honest, our, our ambitions are, are greater than that. We, we think there's a real space for a global south 
publication to occupy the same stage as The Economist, Time Magazine, um, the FT, etc. And, um, you know, we would like to be that publication one day. Um, going to print, I think, would just hamper our ability to reach new audiences, reach new markets. Um, so it's not really something we are very seriously considering at the moment. Simon Allison, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to The Arc Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Arc produces country risk reports every month on Africa's major markets. You can subscribe to these by contacting arc at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now. <laughs>